I'd like to thank everyone for being here this evening as well. Thank you for uh, giving your time to the worship of our Heavenly Father. We thank you that uh, you would uh, take time out of your schedule and to come and be with us and to worship with us. We hope the things that we say this afternoon will be uh, encouraging to you. We talked about who Jesus is this morning. The fact that he is the Son of God and the fact that he is God and that he is 100% flesh as well. I'd like to continue that thought for a few minutes with primarily from a verse that uh, the Apostle Paul states in Philippians 3.10. Where Paul said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable to his death. I know a famous person. Well, I say I know him. I met him. And some doesn't the fact that you meet somebody, doesn't that constitute knowing them? <laughs> I have a picture made with him. Uh, do you all know Mario Andretti? He's a race car driver. Probably one of the most famous race car drivers. He came to uh, the place where I was working, where I retired from. They drove him through there. He was touring the place. They said, uh, Mario Andretti's out here. You want your picture made with him? Sure. So I went and I stood beside Mario Andretti. He's a little bitty short fellow, by the way. I guess you have to be little to get in those race cars. But I put my arm around him. He smiled. I got my picture made with him and I went back in where I was working at. Now, I remember that, but I promise you that Mario Andretti does not remember that. He could care less he had his picture made with me. He's not going around saying, you know, I had my picture made with Mark Parkhurst. He's not saying that. He's never said that. There's some girls back home that went to church with us, and they were Taylor Swift fans. Teenage girls. I guess... And, and they go to concerts and they dress up like Taylor Swift. I said, why do you do that? Well, if we ever get our picture made with her. And if we can ever just talk to her. And that was the goal of their life. And that's understandable for uh, a young person. I'm not criticizing that at all. But Taylor Swift could care less if, they, if she had her picture made with Erica and Brenda. <laughs> but I want to tell you something. Jesus wants to know you. Think about that. He wants to know you. And I can't think for the life of me how anybody could turn that down. Of all the people in the world. That would never care if they ever knew you, ever met you, ever talked to you, ever had any relationship with you whatsoever. But the Lord of heaven and earth, the creator of all things, the king of the universe wants to know you. How could you turn that down? Somebody asked me a lot uh, a few months ago, what drew you to become a Christian? 
You know, I don't think I'd ever had anybody ever ask me that before. What was the appeal to it? And the appeal to it, to be frank with you, is this. For me. And I've always been amazed by it. Is that relationships are what life is about. Is it not so? We value relationships so dearly. We want relationships with our friends. We want relationships with our parents. And when we become in an estranged relationship, life is just suddenly problematic for us in so many ways. And the God of the universe wants to have a relationship with me. And the appeal to that of that is amazing. Well, most people you meet on the street day in and day out, they don't care. In many cases, they just want what they can get out of you. But the relationship that God wants with me through Jesus Christ is one that where he can bless me. <laughs> I have nothing to give to him except myself. So the reciprocal part of that relationship is that God wants to be able to bless me. And I think about the blessings that God is willing to give me if I can only enter into that relationship with him. And how can I turn that down? How could I say no to that? Well, the Apostle Paul, in our text this afternoon, we're going to go through a brief narrative that really is an explanation as far as I'm concerned. And it's become so important to me that I've tried to share this with so many people, as many people as I can. But the Apostle Paul, in his statement, he says this one thing, basically what he's striving for is that he can know Jesus, that I may know him. And knowing him is not the same as me having my picture made with Mario Andretti <clears throat> or Brenda and Erica wanting their picture made with Taylor Swift. It becomes a relationship. And these things that are involved in this relationship becomes the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, and being made conformable to his death. Those things are involved in that relationship. Is there anything more important in the world than knowing Jesus? I assure you, the President of the United States does not care if he knows you. As a matter of fact, the governor of the state of Texas doesn't care. He wants your vote. But he doesn't care if he has a relationship with you. But Jesus wants a relationship. Well, Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 22 and 23, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? Then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. There's going to be a multitude of people that stand before God on the day of judgment. And he's going to make a profession to them. He's going to say, I didn't know you. I've never known you. I've never had a relationship with you. 
Not to say that he's not aware of you. He is aware. He knows everything about you. But knowing about someone and knowing someone are two totally different things. I know a little bit about Mario Andretti. But I don't really know him. And Brenda and Erica know a little bit about Taylor Swift, but they really don't know her. And you may know a little about Jesus. You may think you know a lot about him. But do you really know him? Let's look at knowing Jesus this afternoon. First of all, let's understand that the hope of salvation is based in knowing him. Not knowing about him. But knowing him. Ephesians 1, 20, uh, 1 and, or 2 and 12 excuse me, says that at the time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise having no hope and without God. That's how, and we're going to talk about this one night during the week about being strangers and having no hope without God. Without having this knowledge of Jesus and having this relationship with him. He says that's where we were. For those of us who now know him, we were strangers. But if you don't know him today, you're a stranger to God. Consider that. Furthermore, if you're a stranger to him, then according to the Apostle Paul, you have no hope. And you're without God. These things Paul said he desired in Philippians 3 and 10. He says, I want to know him. I want the power of his resurrection. I want the fellowship of his sufferings. And I want to be made conformable unto his death. Those things I want. Did you join with the Apostle Paul this afternoon in saying, I'll take those things. First and foremost, I want to know Jesus. And I want to know this power of his resurrection. And I'm willing to be a participant in the fellowship of his sufferings. And yes, indeed, I'll be made conformable into his death. The narrative that I was talking about, I'd like to read this to you. It's a little lengthy. I would encourage you to read along with me. And to take your Bible, if you'd like to read from your Bible... But let's read this passage of Scripture. I believe in this passage of Scripture. And it's become, as I said, so important to me that I like to share it with as many people as I can. I believe it gives the process, if you will, of coming to know Jesus. It's found in Luke 24, verses 13 through 34. The Scripture says, And behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus which was from Jerusalem, about threescore furlongs, and they talked together of all these things which had happened. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. And he said unto them, What manner of communications are these, that ye have one to another as ye walk and are sad? And the one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answering, said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem, and hast not known the things which are come to pass there in these days? And he said unto them, What things? And they said unto him, Concerning the Jews of Nazareth, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet mighty indeed in word before God and all the people. 
And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Notice, if you will, they said we trusted that it had been he. There was a knowledge that existed among Cleopas and his companion. They had a certain knowledge that would lead them to trust. But if you've noticed in the reading, as they walked along, the scripture says that they were sad. This trust that they thought that they had and that they were sure of, now they were having doubts. Verse 22 says, Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, as were early at the sepulcher. And when they found not his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels, which said that he was alive. And certain of them, which were with us, went to the sepulcher and found it even so, as the women had said, but him they saw not. Then he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Let's stop and make some observations about this narrative. Some facts were correct, but they still lacked the truth. I believe that's the case with so many people today in their search for knowledge of Jesus and to know him. They have some facts true. In Cleopas and his companion's case, the facts that they had true is that he was crucified. He was dead. That's why they walked along and they were sad. They had that much correct, but yet they didn't know the whole story. So the question I would like to ask you, does our pragmatism prevent us from knowing Jesus? I like to be practical. I like to make practical applications to what the scripture is teaching. I like to do that. I like, to, I like for us to know how to live and how the scripture teaches us how to live. But I'm going to tell you, the word of God is much more than just practical. It's much deeper than that. And to understand, we, got, we have to get past the pra- our pragmatism and go into the, the depths of what the scripture teaches. Sometimes our practical applications prevent us from knowing Jesus. Luke 24 offers the elements, I believe, in the process of knowing Jesus and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. I believe we can find them there. I'd like to point them out to you this afternoon. First of all, we learn that in order to know Jesus, we have to have scriptural validity. Many people would like to know Jesus apart from the Bible. And it's simply impossible. We cannot know Jesus apart from the Bible. So therefore, we understand that parroting certain facts does not mean that one has come to the knowledge of Jesus. Let me illustrate what I mean by that. I grew up in a church going home. My, mom, my dad was an elder in the church. My mother was an elder's wife. I learned all the lingo <laughs> real early. 
And I'll say that there's many people in this building today that know the lingo. And everybody knows the lingo. But knowing the lingo and knowing Jesus are two different things. I could talk about obeying the gospel when I was 10 years old. And I don't know how much I knew about what the gospel really was when I was 10 years old. I was baptized about 10 or 11. But I knew enough to know that I needed Jesus. And I knew enough to know that I had uh, sinned. And I stood guilty before God. I believe that's what you've got to know. In order to come into this relationship. But I could have parroted those comments all day long. And many people can. Recalling certain experiences does not mean that you have a relationship with Christ. I went to school with a girl that said that she was saved in the bathtub. She had some kind of experience physically. I don't, I didn't inquire. Wouldn't think about it. But you know, we've had experiences. We have. But if I'm basing my relationship on some kind of experience where I have some kind of physical feeling, I could be wrong. I can't recall these experiences even knowing to an hour or a day that these happened, that I had these feelings and say, I know Jesus now. It has to be much more than that. We see Cleopas his companion recalling experiences. They, they parroted all the things that had happened, but yet they were without knowledge of the risen Savior. So how then may I come to know him? Knowing Jesus always begins in the Scripture. I'm talking to people this afternoon that have no idea what it's like to be without a cell phone. There's people in here like that. Never been without one, probably. Some of the younger folks. And the idea of not having the Internet is just uh, 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 unfathomable. But I grew up at a time where there was no cell phone, there was no internet, and if you made a long distance call, you had to pay for it. And I met my wife. She's in Kentucky. (laughs) And she wasn't my wife, obviously. I went up there preaching, and, and we met, and then we started writing letters. Now, that's antiquated, isn't it? You know why we wrote letters? Too tight to call. (laughs) That long distance call, I could, I mean, we'd like to talk, wouldn't we? So you'd end up talking, and then next thing you know, you know, I'm taking out a loan for a telephone bill. So we wrote letters. Well, I got this idea, because, I mean, some of my ideas are just so adorable, you know what I mean? But... I got this brilliant idea. Let's start asking questions to each other and we'll give answers to each other. And so I'd write her a letter and I'd ask her these questions about herself. And she'd write me back and give the answers and ask me questions about myself. 
You talk about a relationship that's drawn out, Carrie. It, and she'd be on pins and needles waiting for my letter. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> I want to tell you something, though. As, as silly as that may sound, but I got to know her by reading her letters. I got to know things about her that she wanted me to know about her. And believe it or not, you can get to know Jesus by reading his letters. You can get to know things about him. You can learn about his personality. You can learn what he loves and who he loves. You can learn all those things. And then as your relationship grows and develops, then that intimacy, it gets stronger and stronger and stronger. That's what happened with me and my wife. Well, then when we would get together once every two months (laughs) when I could go up there or she could come down to my place, we had a lot to talk about because we knew each other. There's so many people try to develop a relationship without God or with God, try to develop a relationship with God, but they won't read What he has revealed about himself to us. If you want to know Jesus, you're going to have to learn it through the scriptures first. Verse 27 of this narrative says, And beginning at Moses and the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus took the scriptures. And he showed himself to these men through the scriptures. Let me suggest to you this afternoon that Jesus is doing the same thing with us today in our life. You can know him by beginning at the scriptures and learning those things about him. Ephesians 2 and 8 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. I have highlighted there through faith. Well, we know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Many people have confidence, but they don't have faith. I can have confidence in a lot of things, but faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. There's a difference between the faith that saves and a confidence that allows us to continue a practice that is not even scriptural. It's impossible to know Jesus apart from the scripture. So number one, scriptural validity. Let me ask you, do we have scriptural validity for our relationship? And the relationship that we've entered into with Jesus, that we think we've entered in, is it supported by the scripture? Notice, if you will, Noah heard God's word and built an ark. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We learn that Abraham received a command. And he left the homeland and became a friend of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And it always supports an action. 
Lot received a message of warning and he fled the city. Faith is receiving the word of God and then it supports an action that takes place. And that's the case with all of these great heroes of faith. So our question then is, do we lack scriptural validity for our relationship with Jesus? It's impossible to know him and to reject his word and his, and his commandments. The apostle understood that knowing Jesus, it meant to receive his word. Just as surely as Noah understood that salvation meant to receive his word. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard of us, you received it. Not as the word of men, but as it, as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Receiving the word of God. We continue, number three. We have to welcome Jesus into all aspects of our life. First, we come to know him through the scripture. Secondly, we receive that word that constitutes always an action. Always. Faith has always done that. Thirdly, we receive him into all aspects of our life. Luke 24 verse 28. In this passage that we have read... It continues, and it goes down in verse 28, And they drew nigh unto the village, whither they went. And he made as though he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. I can see these two men. They're learning about Jesus. They're receiving the things that he has taught them. They're finally making application to their life. And then when they get to their door, they say, the day is far spent. Come in. Come into our house. Well, I love that picture. I love that picture of getting to know Jesus because I'm going to tell you until you take him into all aspects of your life, you'll never really know him. Many people want to keep him away from them. Our home, our home is the most, most special place in the world, is it not? My home, it's simple. We live in a little square house, but it's my house. It's Robin's home. In that home is where love is found. Through family, through relationships. It is in that home where we find solitude, where we find peace from the world. It is in that home that Jesus wants to come. And he wants to come into the innermost part of your life. He wants to come into your home. Now I want to tell you, it's risky. It's risky. Because if you're going to allow Jesus into your home, there may have to be some changes made. Jesus will come. He'll walk through that door. And he'll come into your home. 
And then the relationship grows. And that knowing Jesus then becomes not just a knowledge about him. But it becomes a fellowship. One of the things that I remember as a boy. And many of you have this same memory because I know many of you were raised in the church and you were raised by godly parents and I was raised by godly parents. But when we would sit down at the dinner table as a boy, I miss that. But our topic of conversation would always circle around to the work of the church. (laughs) It always did. It always seemed to find its way there. It may start out with secular work. It may start out with enjoyment. But it would always seem to circle around to the, to the work of the church. And our relationship with God. Now I'm not trying to present in any shape, form, or fashion that I was raised by perfect parents. I was not. And they were not inspired people or anything like that. But there was a relationship in our home. That the church was more involved than just a place you went to on Sunday. And it was more involved than just dressing up and going to. It was much more involved in that. And that's what I'm talking about. And I'm talking about with your relationship with Jesus. It has to be something more than just someone that you call on when you get into an emergency. He has to be someone that is in all aspects of your life. But there's something interesting that happens in Cleopas' and his companion's home. And I believe it's the telltale, if you will. I believe it sums it all up. I believe it has to happen in our home and in our life. Notice, if you will, in verse 30. And it came to pass, as he set it meat with them, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they knew him and he vanished out of their sight. Now I tell people that eating a meal has always been a a, a test of fellowship. (laughs) It seems to me have always been a test of fellowship. When I was a kid, I didn't want to eat with anybody. I'd rather eat by myself because generally, and I'm still pretty bad about it, it's proven today with mustard on my sleeve, I get food all over me when I eat. And it was embarrassing. I've gotten past that embarrassment because I'd rather be with my brethren. And I'll eat with people. And and our home, our family, our home, uh, I mean, that's a lot of our work consists in that. In opening up our home to people and having meals with them. That's a fellowship. We see Jesus sitting at the table and eating with Cleopas and his companion. They're having a fellowship that is intimate. It's intimate wrapped around a meal. But there's something else that happens. That's even more telling. Before their eyes were opened and they knew him. What was it? Jesus took the food. He became the server. He became the host. And it came to pass, as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Until you allow Jesus to become the master, the Lord. 
You know, it's interesting that Jesus wanted to wash the disciples' feet, isn't it? That's been discussed as long as I can remember and way yonder, long before I was ever born. Why did Jesus wash the disciples' feet? Well, the scripture tells us plainly why he did. He did it for an example that we would serve other people too, but Jesus wants to serve. He wants to be able to bless us. In order for him to serve us, we have to allow him to become the master. So Jesus comes in your life. You know about him. You receive his word. That precipitates an action toward him. You allow him into your home, into your life. Then you allow him to be master. Who's calling the shots in your home? Who's Lord of your life? Scripture says, and their eyes were opened and they knew him. That's when they knew him. It's impossible to know Jesus and to retain barriers in our life. Is he welcome in your home? Is he welcome in all parts of your life? Is he the master? It's impossible for us to know him and not allow him to be Lord. Number four, we have to allow him to become master of our life. Their eyes were opened and they knew him when he sat at meat with them and he served them. Paul states that he wanted the power of his resurrection being made conformable unto his death. That sounds like a tongue twister in some respects. And what in the world does that mean to begin with? To know the power of his resurrection being made conformable unto his death. Note with me, if you will, in closing Romans 6 verse 4. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. Even so also we should walk in newness of life. When we are baptized, we become conformable to his death. We take part in that death. And when we're resurrected out of the waters of baptism, we take part in that spiritual resurrection. A resurrection, if you will, where we become the new man and we put on the new man. Now eventually, you and I are going to experience a bodily resurrection. And we're going to experience from the sleep of death into a resurrection of eternal life. But Paul said, I want to know that now. And you can know that now. By coming to know Him. Verse 5 says, For if we've been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Colossians 1 and 13 says, Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. That word translated is an interesting word. I take from one place and put to another place. I was in the world, now I'm translated into the kingdom of His dear Son. I was in the kingdom of darkness, now I'm in the kingdom of light. I've been translated. In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. In 1 Corinthians 15 states, And if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain, you are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. In this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. 
For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Paul also states that he wants to be a participant in the fellowship of his sufferings. What does that mean? Does Paul want to be beat upon? What does it mean? Well, notice, if you will, in the same narrative that we read in Luke 24, after their eyes were opened... Verse 33 says, well, verse, verse 32, And they said one to another, after he vanished out of their sight, Did not our heart burn within us? While he talked with us by the way, and while he opened to us the scriptures. And they rose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven gathered together, and them that were with them, saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and hath appeared unto Simon. That road to Emmaus... Boy, one stage of it, it was a very sad road. The second stage of that, when they went back to declare Jesus Christ has been risen and he's appeared to them and we know him, that becomes a happy road. But yet it's a fellowship of his sufferings. For you see, if I'm not willing to engage in the same lifestyle that Jesus was engaged in, I'm not worthy to be his follower. Jesus said, if he will come after me, take up your cross and follow me. Where we follow him? Well, we see that we follow him to Golgotha first. But as he's in his work, what did he come here for? He came to seek and to save that which was lost. We see Cleopas and his companion engaging in the fellowship of his sufferings that same hour of the night when it was dark and when it had been so sad. Now it changes the whole complexion and they're on their way back to Jerusalem with the good news. Fellowship of his sufferings is simply the fact that you and I should be willing to give up our time, our money, Our energy for the spreading of the gospel. The sufferings that Paul desired were not physical, but rather spiritual. And these are the sufferings that you and I should desire to be involved in. We see the suffering of Jesus as he weeps over Jerusalem. Do you realize all of his sufferings were over the sufferings of the lost people? Over people that were without and without a savior. See the suffering of Christ when he's grieved over the corruption of the temple. See that suffering as he's angry against the money changers. See the suffering of Christ as he seeks the lost sheep as a shepherd. Who's willing to carry that back to the fold. See the suffering of Christ as he takes the position of a father watching for the return of a prodigal. Have you ever considered the father in his suffering? I know the prodigal suffered. I know he did. Sin is a hard taskmaster. If you've been involved in sin and and you've been in the throes of sin, you've suffered. I know you have. I have too. But there's a suffering that's involved with the Father. Of waiting patiently day in and day out. Looking for that lost son. Waiting for the return until we can see God as the suffering Father, seeking our return, desiring this fellowship, desiring this knowledge. 
then we'll never be a participant of the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ. Should not our knowledge of the risen Savior cause us to desire to be a partaker of his sufferings? Let me ask you, is it not an unavoidable result? Why do you do what you do? Why do you pray for the lost? Why are you so anxious and why are you so desirous that the ones that you love be saved? Is it not an unavoidable result of being a participant in the sufferings of Jesus? So I end the lesson by asking you this question. Is there anything more important than knowing Jesus? I hope that you can answer that question with a resounding no. There's nothing more important. However, the truth is, according to Matthew 7, verse 22 and 23, that there's going to be many people on that day that's going to stand before him thinking that they knew him. And they make a lot of application. They say, have we not cast out devils? Have we not done many wonderful works? Have we not done all these things? I'd like to show you a picture. You might have seen that. I don't know. That's not my house. I want you to imagine something. That picture. Let's say that you're driving by that, that house. It's a pretty nice place. And you say, you know, I'd kind of like to live there. So you stop your car. You walk up to the house and you ring the doorbell and the man comes to the door. And you say, buddy, I like your house. The driveway is beautiful. You got it well lit too, and I like it. And the guy says, well, thank you very much. Well, I think I'll just move in with you. How do you think that'd go over? How do you think that'd work for you? What, would you, what do you think he'd say to you? What, if you? what if you made the case by saying, listen, I've never hurt anybody in my life. My family, we're pretty good people. We work a job, and, and, and I've never been thrown in jail but twice in my life. I'm not a bad person. I'm a good person. Let me move in with you. What's his answer? Let's say that you're owner of the house. Somebody says that to you. What are you going to say? You're going to say, come on in. Come on in. You look like a good person to me. Do you realize that there's going to be untold billions of people that are going to stand before God that day and make that case? And say, I want to live with you, Lord. Let me move into your house. And I'll tell you what you would say to someone that came up to your home and said that. You'd say, I don't know who you are. I don't know who you are. You can't come into my house. 
Now, we understand that. But what if you go up and that's your daddy's house? And you say, Daddy, I'm home. And I can't wait to move in with you. I'm home. I've been gone a long time. And his reply would be, Son, I'm so glad to see you. If you're God's child and you know Jesus, you've got a home. You've got a home waiting for you. Because you've been born into that family, the family of God. And you're not walking up to that door as a stranger. And you're not walking up to that door as, as a person that's just making a plea based on good morals. But you're basing a plea and making a statement of I'm your child. And I know you and you know me. This afternoon we want to offer an invitation for you to come to Jesus. To be made conformable into his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So that you could be born into the family of God. That you can know him. Him know you. If you're here today and you have walked away from God, perhaps, and you don't have that relationship that you once had or that you desire to have, He is a prodigal father, the father of the prodigal, waiting patiently for you. Won't you come as together we stand and sing?